3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stirred up for you in heaven that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. So we've been looking at Colossians for the past couple of weeks, and what we said is Paul's in jail, and there's this church that he didn't start in this city called Colossae, but it was started by one of his protégés, this guy named Epaphras, and he has come to Paul in jail and has given him a report on the church, said this is what's going on, most of it's good, there are a few things that need to be corrected. Paul can't get there to do it in person because he's in jail, so he sends a letter back, most likely through this guy, Epaphras. So he's introduced himself, hey, I'm Paul, he's given him the greeting, grace and peace to you, and now he's saying, I thank God when I pray for you, and he tells them the things that he's thanking God about them for. He's thanking God because of their faith, because of their hope, and because of their love. If you've been in church for some length of time, you've probably heard faith, hope, and love before. Those three virtues kind of sit at the top of the pyramid for Christians. Those are the three things that Paul says throughout his letters. That's what we need. We need to be people of faith. We need to be people of love. And we need to be people of hope. And so we want to get into that a little bit this morning. We're not going to put those things on the table and dissect them so that you kind of get in your mind what faith, hope, and love is. It's really more a push for me to you to say, are you a person of faith, are you a person of hope, and are you a person of love? If I said right now you can only pick one, which one would you say best describes you? Would you say you're more a person of faith, more a person of hope, or more a person of love. And if I pushed even farther and said, why do you think that? What's your answer? Because you know you're not the other two? It's the only one left? Do you have positive fruit that says, yeah, I, th- this is who I am? And ultimately, we want to be people who are incorporating all three of those virtues in our life, not just saying, kind of, I'm, a, I'm a love person and I'm a hope person and we can put those things together. We want to be all three. So we'll see if we can get into that a little bit. First, let's look at this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Y'all probably heard this parable. It's been floating around for at least 100 years. It seems like maybe it has its roots in India. Nobody really knows. There are these six blind men who are going to the palace of a king, and they've never encountered an elephant before. Obviously, they've never seen one. They're blind, but they've never encountered one either. And they go to this palace, and there's an elephant there. And one of the blind men grabs the trunk and says, oh, an elephant's like a snake. And another one grabs a tusk and says, an elephant's like a spear. And another one grabs a leg and says, an elephant's like a tree trunk. And one's touching the belly and says, an elephant's like a wall. And one's got the ear and says, an elephant's like a fan. And one grabs the tail and says, an elephant's like a rope. And there's all this arguing going on among these six blind men who are saying, this is what an elephant's like. I know, I've touched it, I, you know. So they're doing all of this, and then the, the king or the rajah comes out and says, oh, you silly blind men, you're, both, you're all wrong and you're all right. You all have part of the elephant, but an elephant's a huge creature, and you have to put your insight together to get the full picture. There's a push, I would say, particularly in the West, that's been going on for probably 30 or 40 years, but really cranked up after 9-11, that says all you silly religious people. Don't you realize God is bigger than any one faith? And Christians, you have the trunk, and Jews, you've got the leg, and Muslims, you've got the tail, and Hindus, you've got the side, and Buddhists, you've got the ear, and don't y'all realize you're all talking about the same thing. You just have a different part. 
We live in a religiously pluralistic society that's just going to be con- continue to become more so. It's a multicultural world. And in the name of tolerance and peace, we all need to be willing to let go of these specifics that we hold on to when it comes to our faith. We need to recognize how small we are and how big God is and that we just have one little slice. And we need to be willing to let these other guys that also have a slice come to the table and together we can create this bigger picture of who God is. And there's a, that, again, that push has been going on for 30 or 40 years, but particularly after 9-11, because the enemy at 9-11 was this radical fundamentalist Islam. And that's been taken to mean, or broadened to radical fundamentalist anything. And in case you don't know, most of you would be considered radical fundamentalist Christians. You're part of the problem. You hold on too tight to Jesus. You don't base your life around him, for goodness sakes. He works for you, but you need to recognize he's just the trunk of the elephant. Something else works for someone else, and that's the ear. And something else works for someone else, and that's the tail. And rather than arguing over who's right and who's wrong, we all just need to recognize God's bigger than all of that, and all paths ultimately lead to the same place. It's not true at all. Paul here specifically identifies who he's praying to. I thank God, which God? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very specific. Identifying this is, it's not any of these, it's this God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for us, some of you, depending on the the circles that you run in, maybe professionally or personally, the circles that you run in, there's this push to say, just relax. That's important to you. It's not that big a deal to everyone else. You're arrogant. You're being judgmental. You need to recognize there's bigger truth here than what you've got. And what I want to say, I want to give you permission to stand up against that and say, no, it's okay to identify who God is. The God that you pray to, the God that you serve is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The issue with the elephant is there's a king who's standing back and sees everything, and the guys who are saying this are taking the position of the king. It's incredibly arrogant. What they're saying is all of you little um, intellectual dimwits or religious fanatics or whatever we are, y'all just have one little piece. You're not as smart as us. You can't see the whole elephant. Somehow they can because they're so brilliant, and they're going to enlighten the rest of us. It's arrogant. And the thing with the elephant, the, 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 the claims don't even match. What they're saying is you're all saying the same thing. And what I want to say is we're not saying anything near the same thing. Not even close to the same thing. Our closest cousins religiously are Jews and Muslims. The only other two monotheistic faiths in the world. Christians, Jews, and Muslims believe there's one God. Jesus, the centerpiece of our religion. We say, Son of God, Savior of the world, lived, died, resurrected so we can have life. Jews, they're not going to give you that. They'll say, yeah, he was a guy, and he was a moral teacher, and that was about it. Muslims will say, yeah, he was a prophet, and he brought a message from God, but he wasn't crucified. Judas was. And when he comes back with Muhammad, he's going to break all the crosses off the church because they're a disgrace to God. We're not saying the same, we're not saying close to the same things. Not arrogant, not being a jerk, but we need to recognize the push in the place that we live to say, take this, don't be so specific. 
find it really becomes the lowest common denominator that you can agree to, and it's something along the lines of be nice to other people. That's about what we can get with, that, with everyone else. And again, I'm not saying be a jerk. You don't have to start picketing anybody. You don't have none of that stuff. I don't care if you have a fish on the back of your car. None of that matters to me. What matters to me is for us to know who it is that we're serving. And it's, the God, the, it's God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Period. It's not Allah. They're not the same. It's not the God of the Jews. It's not the same. But we're Old Testament. Yes, they've missed the biggest chunk for us, which is Jesus. We, we relate to him in two completely different ways. Not whatever you've got in Hinduism or Buddhism or Wicca or any of those things. Again, not saying that to be arrogant, but just for us to know. Yeah, there's an elephant, and we are all blind. And most of us do just have a part, but the difference for us is the elephant spoke and said, this is who I am. And he did it through this. All of us carry some caricature of God with us. We take some attribute. It's either the one we love the most or the one we hate the most. And that's who we kind of frame God in that image. God is merciful, so I can do whatever I want. He'll just bring me back, put me on his knee, and everything will be okay, like my granddad. Or God's like my second-grade principal who's walking around with a stick waiting to whip me when I mess up. Or we, we get some image in our mind of who God is, and that's what we kind of carry with us. And what I want is the only solution to that, all of these things, seeing all religions as the same, which they're not, or creating this image of God that's not true, is to read the Bible. Christianity 101, you have to read the Bible. There are no exceptions. Every one of you knows how to read. And you need to read this. I'm not a reader. I don't care. Read it anyway. I don't understand it. They make children's Bibles and they have pictures. Buy one. I I don't care. Figure it out. Find something that works. There's a hundred different translations. You understand one of them. Pick them out till you do. Go to the bookstore, sit down, and find one that you like. I get confused. Ask somebody for help. It's boring. Pick a different section to read from. It doesn't, you have to read it regularly. I don't care what kind of person you are. You have to. And you need to set, for some of you, you need to set up triggers to help you. Like if you're going to go to the gym, you need to lay your clothes out in the morning. So when the alarm goes off, you put on your clothes and you go. You need to call somebody. Hey, we're going to meet there. And you come by and pick me up because you're not going to do it on your own. You need somebody to help you. And for some of you, when it comes to reading the Bible, you need some help. So tonight, when you go to bed, I want you to take your Bible. I want you to open up and put it next to your coffee maker. When you wake up in the morning, you can push on for the coffee maker, and then you can put your face in the Bible. And when your coffee is done, you can quit. That's it. However long it takes you to brew a cup of coffee or drink a cup of coffee, read that much. And do the same. For some of you, you're night people. And so you tonight, well, when you get home this afternoon, open your Bible, put the book light on it so you don't wake anybody else up, already have it open, put it on top of your clock, So when, put it on your pillow. How about that? So when you lay down, you bump into it and read it. It's going to put me to sleep. It doesn't matter. You can fall asleep while you're reading it. God doesn't care. He's not offended. He knows it's not boring. The problem is yours, not his. It's not an issue for him. He wants you to read it, and you need to start. If you have a problem, you need to let me help you. I'll call you in the morning when I wake up, 
and I'll wake you up, and I'll tell you what to read every day. Just give me, I wake up at 5, so I'll call you when I get up. And you, I'm serious, you have to do this. It's all we have. If we want to know who He is, we've got to, this is it for us. Otherwise, you're going to get pushed around out there. And you're going to get pushed around in here. Beth Moore is awesome. But if she's where you're getting everything, you're, she would tell you to quit buying her books if you're not reading the Bible. You don't want to get your stuff secondhand. Some of you are married. I want you to think about if the only way you related to your spouse was through another person. Christy Morris is good friends with my wife. If the only way I talk to my wife is through Christy. She calls me, hey, this is what Missy's doing today and this is where she's going and she wonders about this. And I say, yeah, well, you pass this on to her. That's how some of you live with the Lord. Well, Beth Moore said, well, Kay Arthur said, well, Andy Stanley said, awesome. You can find out all of that stuff on your own. It doesn't matter if you're as insightful as them. God wants to speak to you directly through the Word, and you have got to make it a priority. Again, I don't care what kind of person you are. Become the kind of person who reads the Bible. Only excuses if you don't know how to read. Then listen to it. That's it. There's no other hope for us in terms of walking through. Those of you who are even who are younger than me, it's going to be worse for you than it is for us. This push towards pluralism. Everything's the same. Everything's the same. Everything's the same. All the paths ultimately lead to the same destination. All of y'all are saying the same thing. You're just saying it in different words. And if that doesn't work, they're going to say, for the sake of world peace, you have got to keep your mouth shut. You have got to stop standing on this Jesus ground, waving this Jesus flag. You need to keep that to yourself. That's going to be the push for you in the name of tolerance and peace in society. Your only defense is to know the God that you serve. And the only way to know him is to read the Bible. We always thank God. Why do we thank God? Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Same thing. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe it sincerely. That's all that really matters. It's not what your faith is in. It's just faith itself that's important. I can believe faith, that synonym for faith is trust, firm conviction. I can have every conviction in the world that the laws of gravity don't apply to me. I can rally a group together. I can make bumper stickers. I can, maybe if I'm connected, I can get a resolution passed in the Georgia General Assembly that tomorrow is gravity free day. I can have a group on Facebook that supports me, and I can jump off my roof tomorrow and break my leg. doesn't matter how sincerely I believe. The object of my faith, that's what's important. We miss that a lot as Christians. We get into these things where we think the sincerity of our faith or the purity of our faith or the amount of faith we have is determinative for how God works in our life. Matthew 17, 20, there's this kind of weird verse where Jesus says, you, he's talking to his disciples and through several places, six different places, particularly in Matthew, he calls his disciples, his closest group, little faiths. It's a noun. It's translated you of little faith. It's one word, little faiths. And he's talking to them and he says, you guys, you, he, he, he performs a miracle that they couldn't perform. And they said, why couldn't we do it? And he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, get up and go throw yourself into the sea and it would happen. He said that 2,000 years ago. I don't know any mountains that have ever been thrown in the ocean ever. Greg, you have that picture of a mustard seed. Look how what he's doing. He's 
that's a dime and that's a mustard seed. You see how small that thing is? You have that much faith. You don't need to question whether or not you do. Jesus is not setting up a chart with quantities. When you reach this amount, then this will happen. He's creating, it's an asymmetry. Here's the smallest thing that you know, a mustard seed. Here's the biggest thing that you know, a mountain. The faith, as small as this smallest thing that you know, is big enough to move this biggest thing that you know. Because it's not about your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Period. It's not about how much faith you need to get God to act. It's about how little faith you need to get God to act. It's just that much. That's not much. The point is not to say, is it strong enough? Is it pure enough? Am I devoted enough? The point is to say, anything. He's looking for a crack in the door. And he'll come in. That's it. It doesn't take much to get God to act. Faith is what he's looking for, and he's not looking for much. Give him a glimmer. Just a mustard seed. It's not setting the bar too high that we can't jump. He's putting the bar on the floor. Do you trust me that much? Then I'm going to work. It's not the purity of your faith. It's the object of your faith. The love you have for all the saints. This is the hardest one for me. The love you have for all the saints. There's a scope there. All the saints. I would rather say the love you have for the people that you like. It would be much easier for me to obey. That's not what it says. The love you have for all the saints. Everybody. No. Love. Doing what's best for someone else regardless of the consequences. Regardless of the personal consequences. John 15, I think it's 13. Greater love has no one than this and lays down his life for his friends. There's the picture of self-giving love. This is what it means to love. It means I do what's best for you. The best thing, Jesus, best thing for all of us to be able to be in a relationship with God. So regardless of the consequences to himself, he chose death in order to make that possible for us. That's the picture of love. And then what he's saying to all of us, you've got to do that for all the saints. Y'all remember the story, it's in Luke 10, I think. So this guy comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, what is the, what's the law say? He says, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's it. You do that and you'll inherit eternal life. And this guy, I'm betting he's a lawyer, says, well, then who's my neighbor? He's looking to draw a fence. You, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, so let me figure out who my neighbor is. And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. You know it. There's a guy who got mugged on the side of the road. A priest walks by, sees him there, bleeding, half-naked, just keeps walking. A Levite that's like a worship leader comes up next, sees this guy, bleeding, half-naked on the side of the road, keeps on walking. And then a Samaritan, a dog, half-breed, hated by the Jews, walks by and sees him there, stops, bandages the guy up, fixes his clothes, puts him on his donkey, takes him to a hotel, pays the hotel owner two silver coins and says, if this won't cover it, I'll cover it when I come back. I'll cover the, whatever the gap is. Just take care of this guy. And he looks at this lawyer and says, who was a neighbor to this guy? Turns the question around. The lawyer opens with, who is my neighbor? Jesus closes with, to whom? Or what was this, was the neighbor to this guy? And he says, who, the guy who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, yeah. You go and do likewise. And what I want to say is, no, no. Tell me who I have to love and I'll love them. And what he says is everyone you bump into who has need, you've got to love those guys. Which makes me want to stay in my room. 
difficult. Love is self-giving. Fear is self-protecting. That's why they're opposites. Fear and love are, apathy and love are not opposites. Fear and love are. Fear is looking for a way to protect what I've got. Love is looking for a way to give what I have. There are no limits with the Lord. And with us, I think, how does that that work practically? How am I supposed to love all of these people? I think there's a corporate element to it, but ultimately I think what God says is you you need to do it, period. I'm going to get run over, absolutely. Somebody's going to stab me in the back, for sure. Someone's going to take advantage of you, no question. People are going to think you're a doormat. Yes, they are. So, love them. So my question to you, have you, drawn a fence? have you drawn a line? Have you set up a fence? Are there limits? Let's just think about saints. You don't have to think about everybody else. Just people who are Christians. Have you drawn limits? It's Mother's Day. For some of you, you've drawn a fence, and you're not loving your mother. You cut her off, and you need to reconnect. For some of you, it's people in this room where you're having a hard time loving. You don't necessarily wish them ill, but you're not doing what's best for them. You just avoid them. You need to fix it. Within that fence, you need to fix it. Last, faith and love that spring from the hope that's stored up for you in heaven that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel, that's come to you. Hope is a confident expectation of good in the future. Hope is not deficient faith. It's like you have hope, and then when hope is strengthened, you have faith. Not at all. The way we say hope, I hope the Braves win, that's not hope in the New Testament. That's wishing It's not what they're talking about here. What they're talking about is a confident expectation of good in the future because of who God is. He's the one that's made the promises, and you can bank on them. And hope is particularly important where we live because oftentimes the circumstances of life seem to say God's promises don't work. The things that he said, they're not true. Look around. It's not going to happen. That's why a lot of times in the New Testament you see hope combined in, or in the context of affliction, tribulation, and turmoil. That's when you need it. When the circumstances of life are saying, no, 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 hope says, yes. I feel like as a church, I feel like we do pretty well, this is corporately, pretty well with faith. I think we know what we believe. I think a lot of you are you're standing on the rock. You have your faith is in Jesus. Love I don't think that's an area where we struggle in general, corporately. I was thinking this week, anytime we need anything, we ask once, and we have plenty of help. People are more than willing to serve within the church and out in the community, and that's an expression of love. But this one for hope, for me, I think is a bit of a struggle for us. I think there's enough of us who've been disappointed at some point that we've just kind of said, I'm not going to get my hopes up because I'm going to be disappointed again. And I think that affects us corporately. It absolutely affects you individually. There's a sense in which we've pulled back a little bit. We've lowered our expectations some because we've been disappointed and we don't want to be disappointed again. My challenge to you is to not let your past disappointment affect your future hope. Will you be disappointed? Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, God's promises aren't fully and finally uh, 
manifested until Jesus returns. So until then, it's always going to be a bumpy ride. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be things we get and things we don't get. There's going to be frustration and there's going to be joy. All of that stuff It's just part of living before Jesus comes back. We've talked about that a thousand times. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you going to allow the fact that your hope is being deferred until the future to keep you from hoping at all? The, the disappointment is temporary. I promise it's temporary. Don't believe me. It's temporary because he says it's temporary. Romans 5, I think it's 5. Our hope does not disappoint because God has poured his love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. You can have hope because you have the love of God in your heart. And that love seals this hope. We might not see everything with our eyes before we die. Okay, I get it. Our bodies are going to break down at some point. People are going to let us down at some point. We're going to want stuff, and it's not going to... All of that, yes. That's just deferring our hope. It shouldn't crush it. My challenge for y'all, if you're someone who's kind of turned that switch off, you kind of closed that door, is to open it back up again this morning. Don't allow your past disappointment to keep you from pushing into hope in the future. Do you have a confident expectation of good in the future? If the answer is no, then you've lost hope. And you need to get it back. Let's pray. I'm just going to kind of pray through each of these areas. And if one of them hits you, you can just kind of grab onto it.